There'll be times when you'll be following me. There'll be times when I'm probably following you. As whatever God is doing in your life rubs against what, I'm, what God's doing in my life, and I'm thinking, now that person is further down the road than I am in this particular area. It's the beauty of the Christian life. We get to live in community together. We get to sharpen one another, uh, and it's a, it's a beautiful thing. But as we talk about this, this will be the theme of today's uh, sermon time. I've just taken some steps uh, in our walk together, so I hope you'll bear with me. There are six of them. Uh, but they all lead to a conclusion that hopefully will make sense to you. So step number one is this. Let's remember our vision for the year. This is not just a, a way of, of reintroducing it that's been introduced for the last, what, seven weeks, seven, eight weeks, whatever it's been. I think this is an opportunity for us to actually understand what our vision is from this fall to next fall. And so we have said, shine the light. It's based in, in Matthew 5, 16. And it's Christ in us reveals Christ to our community. It's the theme of the morning. It's the theme of the year. But let's look at that text. It says, let your light shine, so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I just want to take each clause of this, of this verse for a minute and kind of just what, what has been talked about. I'm not going to rehearse everything. I'm just going to say, listen, God's Word says that we are to let your light shine so, so before men. There's this light. It, so what it's saying is we possess a light, and we are to let it shine so others can see. That's the beauty of what light does. It enables us to see things. Uh, at my previous church, we literally could have turned off the lights, and it would have been pitch black. We had interior walls, no windows, so if you cut, shut the doors, it was amazing how much they kept the light out. But you could, it was great for watching movies. And, uh, you know, but listen, there is this light that is filling this room and enables us to see. We are being told by Jesus that we have a light that is to shine before men, and it's so that they can see. So as we go on to the next clause, it says that they may see your good works. It kind of gives us what they're supposed to see. So what are they supposed to see? They are supposed to see our good works. This is the works that we do as Christians, individually, corporately, in such a way that something is accomplished. It's not just seeing our good works. Remember, our good works are as filthy rags if we're depending upon our works to earn our our, our, our right standing with God, our works are no good. But as Ephesians 2.10 tells us that if, if we have already come to Christ, then, then we have works that have been prepared beforehand to be involved in. And those are the good works that God desires us to do. And when we do those works, people are watching. So that third clause says, and glorify your Father in heaven. So this is, this is the sense of, of the whole thing. The world, those that are outside of Christ, the world will glorify God the Father when his light bearers do good works in their sight. I'm just going to leave that up there for a minute. Kind of ponder this a little bit. This world, these, these non-Christians or these people who are pseudo-Christians, which would be the idea of they're not really... They're not really saved. 
They, they think they're saved. They, they, they do some nice things, but they've never been truly anchored in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are to see things in us who have come to a, a legitimate faith. So how do we know that the world is the context of, of, of Jesus' words in Matthew 5? Well, if we go in the context, uh, we can go back a little bit. He says in verse 11, Blessed are you. This is happening right after the Beatitudes of 1 through 10. And he says, Blessed are you when they... There's a they out there. And, and Jesus is saying, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. And say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Let's hope they're talking. Let's hope Jesus is talking about the world and not the church, right? Let's hope we don't have in the church reviling and persecution going on, all right? There may be some reviling. I doubt there's persecution, but there's probably some things that go on in a church that are unhealthy. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But Jesus is saying, Blessed are you, those who have come to a faith in him, when they revile and persecute you. And say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they, there's this group of people again, for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So it's more than just the people within the hearing of Jesus that that are skeptical. It's more than just the people, the Roman culture of the time. He's, He's going back and saying, listen, the prophets dealt with the same thing going on. And they dealt with it, they dealt with the persecution just as believers in Jesus will deal with persecution. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And then here's the verse just prior to, uh, 14 and 15, just prior to our our verse for this uh, vision. He says, you are the light of the world. Now, so we have the you and the world in, 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 in the same clause here. We say, he says, you are the light. Jesus is communicating to, to those who have an understanding of God and have an understanding, have a desire to be, to walk faithfully with him. It says, you are the light of the world. A city is set on a hill cannot be hidden. A, hitty, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. When Christine and I were in Israel and we were in the, around the Sea of Galilee, Dr. Lovick, who is now in God's presence, uh, he pointed at nighttime. He said, look, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. It is a tangible truth. You go anywhere and you say at night, there are people living in that area because we see street lights, we see car lights, we see house lights, whatever it might be. You can't hide that unless you extinguish the light. Jesus is saying right here, you are the light of the world. You that are seeking to be faithful, seeking to walk with God. As a city is set on the hill, you, you're going to be known for the light that you shine. He says, Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. This is what light does. Light shines. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. All right, so that is, uh, in a sense, where we're at. And we're, we're, we're saying that as this verse is unpacked, the world will glorify the Father when light bearers do good works in their sight. But now let's bring it in a little bit. Our community will glorify God the Father when we, His light bearers, I'm talking to every Christian in the room and whoever's joining us online, our community will glorify God. 
when we, his light bearers, do good works in their sight. My focus today is not on the good works. My focus today will become apparent as we go through, but this is the vision for this coming year. And I hope that you will, by at least the end of this sermon, but certainly as we go through this next year, I hope you will sense a burden that we have a responsibility to our community to shine the light through our good works so that God will be glorified. Christ in us reveals Christ in our community. My hope today is that we'll walk away with the idea that we, as brothers and sisters of Christ, as Merrimack Valley Baptist Church, are called to reveal Christ. What if our community is not glorifying God? We've just said very clearly, let your light so shine among men that they will see your good works and they will glorify your Father in heaven. We're saying the glory will take place as the good works take place, but what if our community is not glorifying God? I said this to the first service, and I'm going to say it to you, and I may say it a few times. This is not intended to be a guilt trip. Hopefully I'll remember to explain exactly what I mean in a later slide, but I want you to understand, as you come here this morning, my intent is never to browbeat you. My intent is not to offend you unless the gospel is offensive. The gospel is allowed to offend you. My desire is not to. But as we think about this this question, what if our community is not glorifying God? What if people are not coming to faith in God through our, in quotes, witness? I say that because as we think of witness, there's a genuine witness and then there's a not genuine witness. I'm going to unpack that as we go into step two. But I want these questions, I want this question to kind of sit in your mind for a minute, really for the rest of the sermon. What if people are not coming to faith in God through our witness? What does that mean? Step two. This may seem not connected, but I'm telling you it's the central point of where we're going today. Let's remember our recent Wednesday night series. I asked this to the first service. I'll ask it to you. I've got to be fair. How many of you attend the Wednesday night service on a regular basis? Raise your hands high. And not for a guilt trip. I said high. All right. Not for a guilt trip. Look around. Raise your hands. If you're on a Wednesday night, I, I want you to raise your hand. This is not for your, I am not trying to edify you. All right. I'm just trying to call this out. The vast majority, you can put your hands down, thank you. The vast majority of people in this room have missed an essential teaching that our church needs to be engaged in. And unless I take this opportunity right here and right now to bring it in front of you, you would have gone never having been exposed to it. Not a guilt trip. We invite you to Wednesday night. Not a guilt trip, but it's a stark reality. And so I'm going to let you know right now, all those messages for this particular series called Gospel Culture, they're online. Actually, there's one missing. It's the one on forgiveness, and I've got to figure out why that one's not there. But I, I listened to almost every one of them. There's like five, ten, um, I think there's around ten, eleven of them. 
And uh, I, I couldn't get through all of them, but I got through most of them, and it's a powerful series, and I'm telling you, you should go online onto YouTube, onto our website, which will bring it to YouTube, and you ought to watch this series, because I don't have the time to unpack 11, probably five and a half hours worth of, of, of information, all right? Gospel culture. Here's, here's what the, 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 uh, the, these are slides from that presentation. Culture, a definition, Pastor Dan, we're going to give you credit because that's where I was told to give you credit. All right, the teens may recognize this. This is a, a, a definition of culture. It's not necessarily Merriam-Webster's definition, but it's what is believed, valued, and expected, excuse me, believed, valued, expected, and regularly done. This is what culture is. Think about that and process it, but don't do it too long because I'm going to change the slide. Gospel culture, to define that, it's beliefs, values, expectations, and regular actions that reflect Christ and his work. Beliefs, values, expectations, and regular actions that reflect Christ and his work. I'm not going to unpack all this. That's what all those Wednesday night teaching opportunities that you're going to go back and watch will, will do. But this is important for us to comprehend. This slide, they had it as one slide. I'm breaking it down into three. What is gospel doctrine? Gospel doctrine is just that what's true of the gospel. I can walk you through that outline of, of God, man, sin, death, Christ, cross, faith, life. I can do that all day long, and I can, I can stand on every point of that, and I can explain it to you, and I can bring you to Scripture, and I can, I can tell you all about it. It's anchored in the person of Jesus Christ, God's Son who was incarnated in this world, who lived a sinless life, hung on a cross, and, and died on that cross as God placed the sins of the world of all people of all time, all their sin, as he placed all that sin on Jesus Christ. And he died. The, the substitutionary sacrifice. He hung there for you and for me. He didn't deserve to be there, but he died, and all that sin was atoned for. He was buried. Three days later, he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures. He, he appeared to many. He ultimately ascended into heaven and is currently seated at the right hand of the Father. That's gospel doctrine. He lives to intercede for us. All this is gospel doctrine. I'm sorry, this thing has fallen off. It didn't do this first service. All this is gospel doctrine. But gospel doctrine plus anti-gospel culture equals a denial of the gospel. We need to make this truth a reality in our life. We have to understand that although we may believe so much, if we are not living it out, well, how do you live it out? Go Go watch those, I'll tell you. I'm just telling you, an anti-gospel culture is one that doesn't support the words, the teachings of Scripture. I want to sing it for you, but I always mess up the words, but it's our walk talks and our talk talks, but does our walk talk louder than our talk talks? Right? Miss, miss long every time. It's something along the lines of if your walk talks and your talk talks, your walk should, your walk should, ah, I messed it up. Or your walk should talk louder than your talk talks, right? You should walk what you believe. That's what this slide is saying. Gospel doctrine should, should have gospel culture lived out. 
But when you have a church, and that was the emphasis, when you have a church family where there's an anti-gospel culture, which again is defined in that, it's a denial of the gospel. So wrap your mind around this for a minute. You can believe the truth all day long. If you're not living it out, if we are not living it out, it's we're walking together on this journey, right? We are not living it out together. We are actually functionally denying the gospel. Here's that question again. What if people are not coming to faith in God through our witness? Is our church culture in sync with gospel doctrine? Not a guilt trip. Stark reality. Stark truth. Something we need to face as we walk down this path of serving the Lord and worshiping together. Is our church culture in sync with gospel doctrine? Step three. Let's remember that we will all deny the gospel by the way we live at times. We will all do this. We're in good company because if you listen to those, uh, uh, I'll call them sermons, teaching opportunities Wednesday night, they introduce us to Peter. Peter was transformed by belief in the gospel. Remember Peter? He was transformed. He went from a scaredy cat to preaching to 3,000. He's the guy that when Jesus said to his disciples, who do they say that I am? And they came up with all these names. He says, but who do you say that, I am? say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, it's my father who has, has revealed this to you, Peter. Peter was transformed by belief in the gospel. But Peter denied the gospel by his choice of who to eat with. We're going to be studying the book of Galatians starting next week. And in that story, we're going to see where, where Paul remembers this time where he had to confront Peter and say, shame on you, Peter. You're not living out the gospel culture that we are called to live out. So when I say, listen, we've got to remember we're all going to fail to live in a gospel culture at times. We're in good company. It doesn't mean it's something to strive for. It means it's something we can recognize. But when he ate, he, one day he's eating with the Gentiles, then some Jews from, from, um, uh, from Jerusalem show up, uh, and he starts, separate, he starts eating with them and not eating with the Gentiles anymore, as he had been doing. Paul says, no, that's, that's not the gospel. Jesus Christ died and redeemed them just as much as he redeemed them. You shouldn't be acting like this, Peter. So this is where I want to give you a personal testimony. And as I give this personal testimony, uh, what I'm going to say is this. This is unscripted, so it's probably going to be a little bit different than the first service one. Uh, but I, I will say um, I'm, I'm using this as an illus- illustration. This is a sermon illustration. I'm giving you a personal testimony that will move us along down this road. I fail at living out gospel culture. I have failed. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you probably three, at least three ways that I have failed. And this is the way I've been, I've been, I've been told through uh, most of my ministry years that I'm very transparent when I'm in the pulpit. I find freedom in that because I don't have to be someone different when I'm not in the pulpit, right? I can make a goof up here. I can make a goof, you know, in my office, in my home, whatever. 
I can say something really smart, and I can make, say something really dumb, and uh, I am who I, who I am. But I have failed at gospel culture in three ways. One, in my home. My wife does not know I'm going to say this. I appreciate if you not talk to her about it, but I yelled at my wife last week like I have never yelled at her before. It's just me being transparent for a purpose. Things are stressful. A lot going on in the house, outside the house. She heard my voice, but she had no idea what was going on inside of me. I did not just yell. I yelled with intent. I yelled with passion. Sinful passion. We were not right for a little bit. I told her I should never have done that and asked her to forgive me. It ensued a conversation and we are just as strong as a married couple as I can imagine anyone being. I'm so thankful for it, but I shouldn't have done that. And it's come to my attention in recent weeks and months, really. Some of the words that I have spoken from this very pulpit have actually impacted people in a way I never intended. It's a shame. The very people that I want to love and I want to unfold God's truth to, both regular members and guests, in my words, were either misunderstood or misspoken. And I grieve over that. Also, related to my preaching, I'll say that I, I have been confronted over the last couple of years with the, the way I preach, the, you know, different things. And, 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 and what am I, why am I bringing this all up? Am I after a pity party? God knows I do not want one. So don't, dare, don't you dare give me one. I'm going to give you a solution to responding to people when they are transparent. And what they say makes you either uncomfortable or sympathetic or empathetic or whatever. There's something I'm going to ask you to do at the very end of this sermon that I'm actually asking you, don't, don't feel sorry for me. Why? Because here's my testimony. Although all those are true, all that stuff is true, God's doing a work in my life like he has never done before. He is able to redeem the sin against my wife and it's such a way to saying, well, Greg, the bridge is out ahead. You need to get your act together and figure out what's going on because you've never done that before and you never want to do that again. And I'm saying, yes, Lord, I never want to do that again. But something's different. I need to... In Christ, I need to figure that out. God has been doing a work in my preaching over the last, I'd say, year and a half or so. I've been trying to change some things due to some different things. And yet I still make mistakes. And I can wallow in self-pity or I can move forward. And I'm choosing to move forward because God has put me here. He's doing a work in my life. And, and so here's the illustrative nature of this time. 
it's not about me. It's about Christ in me. And this personal testimony that I'm sharing with you and being transparent, I'm revealing what's going on inside of me. And I'm telling you right now, you would never know it unless I told you. And I'm telling you to set yourself free to tell others what's going on in your life. Don't wear the mask. Take it off. Recognize that even the ugliest part of your Christian life has already been redeemed in Christ. And he's saying, live it out. Confess it. Own it. And trust me. I am doing a work. And at the end of all this, you're going to look like Jesus. More and more like Jesus every day. Step four. Let's remember that our God is a self-revealing God. As much as I can stand up here and tell you what's going on in my life and reveal to you what otherwise you wouldn't know, God has chosen to reveal himself to us. He has done it in such a way that there's really no excuse for us not to come to faith in God. He reveals himself in three ways. I've just, I mean, probably more, but these are the three I want to highlight. Our self-revealing God reveals himself through his creation. This is a powerful truth, and this is an entry-level uh, uh, Christian thought, really, to help us understand the world that God is reaching through his means and through his power. He's saying this in, in Romans chapter 1. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, but God has shown it to them. Do we realize the burden that is upon Merrimack Valley Baptist Church as we consider Christ and us reveals Christ to our community, a community that is headed for the wrath of God? They are headed in that direction. It goes on to say in the text, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are what? Without excuse. Every Christian in this room was without excuse before they came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done. Every single one of us, we're all in the same boat. And there's a world outside these walls that, are, that is still trapped in that situation. Because although they, those people outside the walls, although they know God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile, and their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is the plight of the non-Christian. This is the plight of an unbeliever. 
So our self-revealing God reveals himself through his creation, but he wasn't content to leave it there. Our self-revealing God also reveals himself through his word. Just listen to three verses out of Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. God has created every world, every star, every speck of of existence came from the voice of God. But notice this, God spoke. He wasn't satisfied to just create. He said he spoke. He spoke through the prophets. Just go to the Old Testament and see God is pleading with the nation of Israel. He's pleading with the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. He's saying, listen, turn to me, repent, know me, know my ways, follow me. Some did, most did not. But he spoke by the prophets. And then it says in these last days, he spoke by his son. He wasn't content on his, just his creation. He wasn't content on just men and women uh, like me and you. He said, no, I'm going to send my son. It sounds like a parable we don't have time to engage in. But surely they'll believe the son. And they took him outside of the vineyard and they killed him. And Jesus was speaking of, of the death that he was going to pay for all mankind. He came because God so loved the world. The text goes on to say, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and holding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is Jesus Christ. This is our Lord and Savior. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He himself purged our sins. And his work as the high priest, which Hebrews will explain later, we're not going to engage in today. The high priest never sat down. Jesus did. It's done. There's a young lady by the name of Jennifer. I don't know, I don't know if she's watching today. She called me out this past week. I'm still the person she goes to to ask spiritual questions. She is trapped in a cult. She knows she's trapped. They've got her in the grip of her hand, and she doesn't know what to do. And as I'm pleading with her for decades now to just come to faith, the simple faith in Jesus Christ, he did it all. It says it right here. He himself, by himself, purged our sins. There's nothing left to be done, Jennifer. There's nothing left to be done for anyone here that's still trying to please God by living out a life by, of good works. No, it's all been done. He himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is coming again, folks. He's, there's a future coming of Jesus Christ, and for all those that are in him, it'll be a glorious day. But there are those who will who do not know him or have rejected him, they are without excuse and they will experience hellfire, damnation, all those scary words. But what it means is they have chosen to not experience the free gift of life that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. 
they have chosen to stay in their rebellious nature and reject the Son that is revealed to us in Scripture. The self, uh, what is the word I use? Uh, this, this God who is self-revealing, this is the God whom we know. Our self-revealing God reveals himself through his creation, through his word, ultimately through his Son. But amazing uh, uh, as it is, our self-revealing God reveals himself through his children. I think that really sums up this verse, 516. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus has the, has the world in, in mind as he's speaking this. There are people that need to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And we are the ones to introduce them to Jesus. Not just our words, though, folks. The way we live. If I didn't say this earlier, I need to say it. And that is that part of that gospel doctrine is true gospel doctrine means it's lived out in gospel culture. So step five, let's remember that our self-revealing God is still revealing himself. We'll, we'll just look at this. We're getting to move along here, but we know this. It drives everything that is done in this church ministry. Jesus came and spoke to them. All authority, that same revealed, self-revealed Son, has all authority given to him both in heaven and earth, and he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We say our mission as a church is to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. We need to go. We need to make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We have teaching opportunities almost every day of the week here. If you, encounter, if you consider the, the school ministry, definitely every day of the week. Saturday is the only one that's kind of up in the air. But we're usually prepping or doing different things. But folks, listen, take advantage of the teaching opportunities that are here so that you can come, come to know and to learn and to, you can observe to do all that God has commanded you. Sunday morning is not enough. Not a guilt trip. It's the truth. If you read the family happenings this week, I exposed my soul in there. Again, I find freedom in doing that because I, I want you to understand. I really do. I, I implore you. I plead with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Understand. We are not here. I'm speaking of our pastoral staff and our staff. We are, we are not here to pat our pockets. We are not here on some get-rich scheme. We are here because we're called to let our light shine in lives so that God will be glorified. And you have that same calling upon your life. You have opportunities. Don't feel guilty if you're not taking advantage of them. Just take advantage of them. Don't apologize for taking my time to do marriage counseling. 
I love to do marriage counseling. There's probably nothing that puts more wind in my sails than, my, than marriage counseling. What if people are not coming to faith in God through our witness? Is our church culture in sync with gospel doctrine? This is the point that I want to make sure that you're understanding. Living in gospel culture is the way we reveal Christ to our community. To just go out and do works means nothing outside of a, of a gospel culture. For me to stand up here and, and, and then offend and, and, and be malicious, it does nothing for me to preach God's word and then not live it. Living in gospel culture means we reflect Christ and his work. That's that def- part of that definition of, of gospel culture. It's the idea that we, we reflect Christ and his work in all aspects of life. We are to live in gospel culture by reflecting Christ and his work in our relationships. Is there a relationship that's on the rocks today? If any relationship should be on the rocks, it's my wife's and mine based on the way I treated her, sinfully treated her last week. But are, are we on death's door? Are we on divorce's door? No, why? Because the gospel comes in and redeems. We're, brothers and, we're a brother and sister in Christ. What about your relationships? In this church and outside this church, are they anchored in gospel culture? Are you living out your faith in front of your family? Are you living out your faith in front of outsiders and inside? You're really just hard to live with. We're supposed to reflect Christ and his work in our worship. I pray to God that's what's happening right now. But there's all kinds of aspects of worship. Are, are, are we reflecting, as a church family, as a church body, are we reflecting Christ and His work in our worship? We're going to be talking about some of this stuff very pointedly in the coming months as we talk about Christianity and culture, as we talk about aspects of worship. We're called as a community to live out the gospel in such a way that we are reflecting Christ and His work in our worship. And that means when someone walks through this door that does not know Christ, They should not be offended from the pulpit, and they should not be rebuked in the pew. And they certainly should not be ignored. They should certainly not be judged. Living in gospel culture means we reflect Christ and His work in our private time. What does that look like for you? There was a man who was very influential in my life, and he said one day on his, on his journey to coming to faith that a preacher challenged the group of the people in the room, you are who you are when you're all alone. Shook him to the core. He knew who, who he was when he was all alone. That was almost the straw that broke the camel's back, and he came to faith. What about you? Who are you when you're all alone? Because you know what? God is watching not a guilt trip, not a threat. It's reality. He knows. And he is willing to redeem you. He is willing to forgive you. 
He is expecting you, if you're his child, to repent and turn to him as a loving father. And he will redeem even that sin and somehow use it for his glory later in life. So much of my young sin in my young life has been redeemed by God as I minister to other men, as I minister to other marriages, as I minister to parents. Every, uh, every failure in my life is an opportunity for God to redeem it and use it for his glory. Is that the way you look at your failings? I'm not saying I've arrived, folks. I haven't. I'm saying God is able to do above and beyond what you could ask or imagine in your life and through you into the lives of others. We are to be living out a gospel culture that reflects Christ at every moment. Let's not be hypocrites and say we believe gospel doctrine, but we refuse to live a gospel culture. I thought to myself when I got to step six, you're probably wondering, what does he expect? What is he going to say now? Can't we be done? Yes, we can be done. Let's pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send workers into his field. What? What do you mean? Pastor, we read that passage earlier. That's that passage we read when mission, missionaries are here. That passage is for you and me. Look what it says. Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That's what we hope to do here, is preach the gospel of the kingdom. He was healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Jesus could do that, right? He had the power to do that. Certainly we have the ability to do good works as well that redeem and glorify God. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherds. The first service, I couldn't remember how to, how to translate those words differently, so I, I pulled it up on my phone. To be weary is the idea. That word means to be distressed. That was one of the reasons that I sinned against my wife. I was distressed. But maybe that's not what's going on. Maybe it's, it, the word can mean to be confused. Jesus was moved with compassion for them because they were confused. They were troubled. They were fatigued. They were hurting. They were bewildered. Dan asked the question during his sermon, are you exhausted? Kind of fits here. But maybe that's not the word for you. Maybe one of these words. Jesus comes and he was moved with compassion because they were all those things, but and scattered. The word can also be translated to be dejected, to be downcast, to be helpless. To be dispirited, to be put down. These words describe you this morning. 
But when he saw the multitudes, this is the same Jesus who was self-revealing, sent by the Father into the world. God so loved the world that he came. The same Jesus who created everything. He says, it's the text says, he saw the multitudes. He created those multitudes. And he was moved with compassion because of their plight. They were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And there's the good shepherd standing right in front of them. And some were believing and some were not. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Before we move on to that last clause, let me just say this. He says here that he saw the multitudes. And it says here, the harvest is plentiful. Folks, there is no lack of opportunity for us to speak and live out the gospel in front of our community in such a way that they glorify God. You are not so sheltered that you are somehow not in contact with people who need to know Jesus. And it may well be through the testimony of you that they come to faith. I'm trying to remember the circumstance. If it was you, I don't have you in mind because I can't remember exactly what it was, but I was talking to a husband and wife. And the wife came to Christ first. And through the testimony of, her, of his wife's faith in Christ, the husband came to faith. Forgive me if I'm exposing anything sensitive detail. I'm not using your name, but I know it's someone probably in this room or, or watching this online. The harvest is plentiful but laborers are few. This is where in the missions conference, we're pounding the pulpit. You need to think about being a missionary. You need to prayer walk your community. You need to poke your head over the cubicle next to you and start speaking in the gospel. And I'm not saying any one of those things is not true. You could do that, but that's not what I'm asking you to do. I want you to respond to the work of the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus is moved with compassion and he has this moment, this teachable moment with his disciples, he says the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. What does he say in 38? Therefore, based on all that, pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Yes, that might be you, and certainly it should be you at some level. Yeah, that, but notice, we're not told to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're not told to be that church that sends out a thousand missionaries. We are called to be that church that lives a gospel culture in front of each other and in front of our community, and a gospel culture praise to the Lord of the harvest. So as I talk about myself, which is easy for me, but concerns me greatly because I do not want you leaving here thinking about me. I'm just you with a suit. We are all broken vessels. But if you're in Christ, we're all redeemed broken vessels. And so as I said, I don't, I don't need emails of consolation. I don't need a pat on the back. I don't need encouragement. I don't need anything. Why? Because God is doing a work in my life, and that's enough. And if the work that he's doing in my life somehow filters into yours, praise God 
your lives are filtering into mine. And we are called to pray to the Lord of the harvest. It's his harvest. It's his field. He doesn't need us to do anything. He's God. He desires us to be actively engaged in what he has called us to do because it's good for us. It's good for our community. Let's walk together. Christ in us reveals Christ to our community. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these folks and for their patience. Lord, I praise you for the work you have done in each of our lives, for those who've come to faith. And I pray, Father, no one in this room has heard a word of condemnation. Sin is real. Consequences of sin are real. But salvation is real. And Father, may we be that community that lives out the gospel in such a way where more and more people in our community are coming to faith. That is when we will know that our good works have been done in the light of the gospel. When we see people coming to faith in the Son who has self-revealed, whom you revealed, whom you continue to reveal. Father, may you be glorified as we respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.